Good morning, FCBC Walnut family and friends. As we gather together on the last day of this month, October 31st, we find ourselves at the intersection of several occasions in our church and in our culture. The youth are combined with us, as you heard Pastor Kevin share, to partake of the Lord's Supper, just like they did last week when we celebrated baptisms and welcomed new members into our intergenerational church family. Look around, this is us, and it is wonderful to be together. Today, as Pastor Albert mentioned as well, is Reformation Sunday, which commemorates Martin Luther nailing 95 theses on a wall on a church. Finally, it is Halloween, a day for which costumes and candies converge in abundance. On some levels, all of these occasions are pretty ordinary in that they happen regularly and are ingrained into our collective culture and rhythm. However, when Jesus becomes the center of attention and our hearts are set on his words and his works, everything changes. As we continue to journey in the Gospel of John, we find ourselves in the middle of a festive wedding, one of the seasonal highlights of every community. This is where Jesus will transition from a very private life up until this point to a progressively public ministry. He does this, of all things, by performing a miracle out of the ordinary, much like he is doing every day of our lives. Please join me in a word of prayer as we prepare to receive the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, we ask, God, that you would open up our ears and soften our hearts so that we may receive the seed of the gospel that's going to be proclaimed this morning through Jesus' first recorded miracle in John chapter 2. Father, remind us that the true source of any celebration comes from the work and worth of what Christ has accomplished on behalf of sinners like us through his death and resurrection. May the glory of Christ shine brightly in our midst so that we may behold, believe, become, and bring people to Jesus on this journey of following him. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. All right, so as we've mentioned, we would like for you guys to have your phones off as much as possible. And so to assist you and to support you, the scriptures will be on the screen. If you have a paper Bible, by all means, use it, flip it, share it, write in it. But if you just need to know and be able to interact with the scriptures and you don't have a paper Bible and a good friend next to you with one, then it'll be up there on the screen for you to look at. Make sure this works here. I have here before you John 20, 30 to 31, which declares the purpose, according to Apostle John, as to why he wrote this gospel. He wrote this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John painstakingly collates a ton of details that he recalled and he researched under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit while he was in exile at the end of his life so that all readers and listeners who are able to receive what he is sharing would believe in Christ and live abundantly through him. Today, we're going to be looking at a familiar story in the Bible for many of you. Jesus at a wedding, turning water into wine. So I want to encourage all of you to put on the lens of how then Jesus navigates through these ordinary events to bring about miracles and how he calls us to trust him 
in life so that we may truly experience it to the fullest. Here is John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, to set the scene for today's encounter with Jesus. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. We start chapter 2 picking up with Jesus and these first disciples three days after the encounter that he had with Nathanael, whose first response when he heard about this Jesus was, quote, can anything good come out of Nazareth? As Pastor Hanley mentioned last week, this was not necessarily a knock on Jesus' hometown, but more of a surprise and sincere inquiry since Nazareth was not a prominent city in relation to divine revelation and activity up until that point. However, that makes the setting of this miracle even more interesting, since Cana is even smaller than Nazareth. It's less than 10 miles away, near the Sea of Galilee, so you go down to it. But not only is this tiny town of location of Jesus' first sign, as recorded by John, but it is also where the third sign takes place in chapter 4 as well, when Jesus healed the royal official's son. God's ways are truly higher than our ways, because certainly we probably would not have chosen a town like Cana. Weddings were important during Jesus' time, just as they are today. More than just being a special occasion for a couple and their family and friends, it was actually a communal celebration. Jesus lived during a time that was dominated by agriculture, and people stayed put, they grew up together, they established their families and their vocations together, and then generation after generation, they built relationships and they continued to thrive. There was no public transportation, no instant communication, or flashy entertainment, or even really places to go. So when a wedding is planned, it automatically goes to the top of the community calendar, and everyone is invited. In fact, it is not uncommon for wedding celebrations to last an entire week filled with processions, rituals, meals, and gifts. And this is where we find Jesus, his mother Mary, and the first disciples as they showed up together at a can't-miss function with people that they have known, people that they grew up with, people they have worked with, and even possibly are related to. It seems like an unlikely place for the outing of the Son of God into public ministry because he will be doing this for the next three and a half years until his timely death and resurrection. After all, there was no pomp or circumstance. There was no press release. There was no influence or promo that went viral to declare this. This is earth-shattering as Jesus comes onto the scene. But yet, what Jesus did was that he participated actively in a familiar yet significant milestone of a wedding where people knew him and he knew them, they saw him grow up, they knew his family, and that's where he made a miracle out of the ordinary, as he often does with us. Now, in verses three to five, we find how Jesus created a new identity out of need. Through this, he addresses what family looks like and what ultimately the allegiance to family should be. Starting in verse 3, we find here a problem. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. No wine is a big deal for a wedding during that time. Because in Jewish culture, wine was a symbol of celebration, of joy, and of happiness. And it was also the bridegroom's responsibility to make sure that there was enough of it to sustain an entire week's, if it goes that long, of celebration for all of their guests. This was not only a cultural faux pas for the wine to be gone. It will also bring shame and suspicion to the bridegroom's family because they, by culture, have committed to bring in the bride into their home, make her a part of their clan, and to provide for her and the family for the rest of their lives. So if you run out of wine for one week, how can you take care of this bride for life? This is the reason why Mary brought up this issue, because it was possibly of personal concern for her since they knew each other in that community, and she may have been helping this particular wedding. She might have been involved in a more personal way and possibly even have been related to them. So she took this to heart, and she brought this up to her son, Jesus, in verse 3. You know, it makes sense that she did this. It wasn't out of the ordinary, because by this time, it is very possible that Joseph was no longer alive. You don't see him mentioned anymore after the incident of the family going to the temple when Jesus was 12. And if everybody was invited, Jesus, his siblings, his buddies, and dad wasn't there, dad probably was no longer alive in the world. So Jesus, then as the eldest son, bears a greater responsibility without the father in the home to do that. But that's also why his response to marry his mother was very unexpected. In verse 4, he addressed her as woman. Now, Mary's son could have called her mother. There's biblical grounds for that and incidences of that, of a son calling a mom mother. But he didn't do that. He said, woman. Now, to be clear, according to scholars, it's not necessarily disrespectful, but it does create a little bit of distance. It's not very warm, right, to be able to look at your mom and say, woman. It's not the same. We get that. But he goes on to say, what does this have to do with me? And here's the reason. My hour has not yet come. It is here that we start to see the intention of Jesus' greeting because we also see what is happening here in the big picture of his private to public ministry. It wasn't to dismiss his flesh and blood mother who at the end of his life on the cross, he made provisions for her. He's her son. He loves her. He'll take care of her. But it was to identify his higher allegiance to the will of his heavenly father. After all, the answer to his question is simply this, nothing, right? What is between me and my mother as it relates to an earthly affair? If he asks that question, the response is nothing. It is rhetorical in nature. Why? Because he had a heavenly father that he is now answering to. And the Son of God did not come into the world primarily to meet earthly needs, cultural expectations, or creature comforts. But the true light, as he was identified in chapter 1, came into the world so that we could see and behold God's glory and live abundantly forever through faith in him. So John used this clear response to help us see how Jesus took the turn 
and broke the doors of private ministry as a faithful son to his mother to the public ministry of being the Messiah or the anointed one of his heavenly father. Jesus had something greater in mind than just wine, which he alluded to in referencing the hour. What is the hour that Jesus is referencing? The Gospel of John points to a significant event as the substance of that reference. I have listed five passages from this book on a slide pointing to the hour, and in each one, it is referencing the crucifixion of Christ, which is how God's glory will be displayed through the Son to the world. Jesus lays out a trajectory that is known to him, but is unfamiliar to everyone else. He also broadcasts personally to his mother that now was the time for him to fulfill his incarnational purpose for which he was given life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know what's going on through, mother's head, or through his mother Mary's head, whether she hearkened back to three, three decades earlier when the angel announced to her to not be afraid, but that she was the recipient of great news and holy blessing. To all of her memories of raising Jesus, seeing him grow up in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people, whether she recalled how Jesus stepped into the role that Joseph had held if the father had indeed passed away by then and provided for the needs of the family. We don't know what she was thinking, but we can understand why she went to him when the wine ran out. She wasn't necessarily looking for a miracle. After all, that would be not within anybody's expectation at that time. But she just wanted her beloved firstborn son to help his mother. His, her simple response to the servants in verse 5 then said everything we need to know. She said, do whatever he tells you. No questions, no doubts, no complaints. And by submitting to her son, she was submitting to his heavenly father's will. By trusting her son, she was trusting his heavenly father to provide. What a beautiful display of faith and support from a parent to a child that revealed the highest priority for every Christian parent to anchor their kids' lives on. Seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will be taken care of. When we see our disciple-making in the home as training the next generation in an encountering to supernatural power and provision of God through Christ, then even the ordinary chores and mundane tasks become purposeful as they provide opportunities for us to point to Jesus in dependence and faith. Parents and grandparents, let me ask you a simple question. When you think about the future of your children and grandchildren, is your heart response like Mary's? To the servants? Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Is that your response? Is that what you steer them towards? Or do you have an agenda, timeline, and a set of priorities that present roadblocks to joyful obedience to Christ every step of the way for your child and for your grandchild? Don't get me wrong, we are stewards of the gifts that God has given to us, which includes our academics and vocations. However, when push comes to shove, what means the most to you, parent and grandparent? That your son or daughter is successful and comfortable without earthly care or worry in this life, or that they are faithful in following Jesus and making disciples wherever God wants them to be, even as doctors, lawyers, and engineers. In this narrative, Jesus has not performed 
any miracles yet, but he has made his kingdom priorities abundantly clear. And that's where we are called to start, which is then what drives us to our knees in prayer, knowing that only God can do miracles in the lives of our children, the greatest of which is the new birth by the Holy Spirit, which gives them a new heart and makes them a part of our forever family in Christ. As time goes, I realize more than anything, that's what I want for all my children. So I pray and rejoice, and I pray and I persevere. Jesus takes the matter into his hands in verses 6 through 8 as he makes new righteousness out of ritual. Verse 6 begins this way. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. The Son of God proceeded to instruct the servants in this matter. Get six huge, gigantic water jars, which you don't use to store wine, and bring them here. Lug them over. Carry them over here. Let's pause a moment to consider how strange this request is when you look at the details. John goes out of his way to describe the size of these jars, which collectively hold 120 to 180 gallons of water. Whether they were smack dab where the wedding was or nearby and had to be brought in, it was not simple for these servants to do. In addition, he instructed them to fill it all the way to the top with water, which you can see is to make sure that the nature of what he was about to do is proven to be supernatural rather than a sleight of hand. During these times, water was not drinkable as it is. Therefore, wine was made from fruit, and depending on the amount of fermentation, will be added to water for dilution, since it was a sin to be drunk. So when the jars were topped off, then its contents were secured. But then again, this must have been strange for the servants, as well as taking a little while to do. That being said, they did what they were told, and then we see that nothing is said between verses 7 and 8 when Jesus asked them to take the contents of the jar to the master of the feast. But that's where the miracle happened. How do you know this? Because of what took place afterwards. And we knew what went into the jars in the beginning. An important detail to pay attention to here is the mention of the Jewish rites of purifications. These were rules that were not directly found in Scripture, but were the tradition of the elders and enforced by the Pharisees and Jewish religious leaders during that time. It's the reason why these jars were made of stone, because that was a material that didn't become unclean. You can see the system at work in Mark 7, where the disciples were chastised because they didn't wash their hands before eating. They also washed eating and cooking utensils for the same reason. The idea is this that what is in the world is dirty and defiled. So as a religious Jew, when you come back home or to your community, you need to be washed clean so that you will not bring the filth of the outside into the holy people of God. In light of God's sovereign hand over everything in Jesus' life and ministry, the fact that his public ministry begins in connection with this means that those who are considered religious can be made right with God beyond 
ritualistic means. This itself cannot be overlooked. The connection is crystal clear. After all, Jesus came into the world preaching a message of repentance and faith in him for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because we are sinful at heart. We sin because we are sinners, not just because there's outside influences that we need to be protected from. Now, don't get me wrong. The world is evil in many respects as it turns away from God in beliefs and in culture. However, the cure to our separation and alienation from God is not just ritual performance, but being born again in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need a new heart, and only God can give that. You cannot wash a sinful heart away. You cannot wash it away through baptism. You cannot wash it away through the Lord's Supper. You cannot wash it away by attending church or saying grace before you eat. There is something inherently sinful about the human heart. And that is what Reformation today, being Reformation Sunday, brought out into clarity for the church. You know, this entire worldwide Reformation certainly wasn't Martin Luther's idea. He was just a young professor at the University of Edinburgh, and he wanted to spur a conversation through these 95 theses that would be looked at but probably easily dismissed as people walked by. Because again, papers are everywhere. This is how they communicated. So most people probably didn't even pay attention to what he put up. So it wasn't fancy. It didn't attract a lot of attention at that time. But he just wanted to dialogue with the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church. He certainly didn't have revolution in mind. If anything, his ideas weren't even new. Other people have talked about these particular ideas, and his means of engagement is ordinary. However, his ideas turned the teachings and practices of the church upside down, as Pastor Albert mentioned, leading to the five solas of the Reformation, scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, and glory to God alone. And the heart of these solas comes from the discovery, or maybe rediscovery, an emphasis on the beauty of the work of Christ, that the sinner is justified and made right with God through putting his or her faith in Jesus' work on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. The Bible describes a great exchange where Jesus bears the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins, and we are made clean through his righteousness because he perfectly kept the law. This was a gift that we cannot earn, pay for, or perform rituals to gain or to keep. When Jesus performed the miracle, no one knew. It was in the white space between verses 7 and 8. Just like the work that is done in the heart of a sinner, when he or she is born again by the Holy Spirit, leading to our desire to repent from sin and to love God and people. Last week, we saw four baptisms. And today, all those who have been baptized partook in the Lord's Supper together with others who have been baptized and professed their faith. We don't do it because we think that by doing, we'll be made clean each time. That our salvation hinges on these rituals being performed, but we do it because of what Christ has done for us in the past. The promise of his return in the future so that we can please him in everything we do, bearing good fruit and increasing in knowledge with one another in the present. When you walk out of this room, we 
can be encouraged to continue to follow Jesus. Now, when Jesus performed that miracle, he signaled the beginning of a new system, one that clings to Jesus' righteousness rather than seeking to earn our own. That religion is based on what we can do for God to be good. That is barren. That is empty. And it is hopeless. It has run out. This new wine of finding favor with God because we are in his son and his work. This is possible because of what Christ did. And it sustains us and transforms us for good. This is why we need to become new wineskin. Even as we are seeking to follow Jesus, it is the Holy Spirit's work. But it is Christ's work, ultimately, that we hope in and put our faith in. Let's go on to the next point where Jesus makes new joy out of failure. Starting from verse 9, John continues. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But he have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. There's a way by which weddings are celebrated, especially when it lasts for a week during that time and wine is involved. The idea is simple. You serve the best wine first because later on, the guests probably won't know the difference and you could serve the lesser quality wine then. This is why the master of the feast was surprised when he tasted the wine that Jesus made, which he didn't even know Jesus made it, just as it can be easily for us to miss it between verses seven and eight, he was shocked, and his remarks as an eyewitness reveal that. His testimony is this. This wine is so good. It is the best wine of the wedding so far. The best wine this week, maybe even ever, by the enthusiasm of his comment. Now, according to Dr. Andreas Kostenberger, he describes the role of the master of the banquet, which he calls it that, as this. It was the position of honor with one of the master's primary duties being the regulation of the distribution of wine. He did not join the wedding party at the table, but rather as a head waiter in charge of catering, supervised the serving of food and drink with several servants under him carrying out his orders. In other words, he had one job. So if anyone could give credence to this miracle and to the wine without even knowing about it, he can. Interestingly, you don't find the groom, the servants, Jesus' mom, or even Jesus responding to what the master of the feast said to the bridegroom. And that may be the easiest detail to overlook in this story. I mean, what do we miss? Well, Mary recognized the problem right away in the beginning, which is why she turned to Jesus. Running out of wine at a wedding is a catastrophe. It would be like running out of candy during Halloween with a long line of eager kids lined up around the block, and you're the first person that they have to get candy from. Not only did Jesus transform water into wine, a miracle that only the God who created the earth and everything in it can do, what he did allowed the party to continue as if nothing happened. 
he did not draw attention to himself. And the guests were able to celebrate the union of the couple, bringing much delight to the entire community. You know what Jesus did? He manifested God's glory and gave life to this ordinary wedding, delivering people from shame and spurred on greater celebration. In everything that we do then, we should always consider how our cultural observances should be primarily anchored in Christ and what and how we celebrate it, because in him we do have much freedom, but then also responsibility. And so may the work and words of Christ be the center of all of our celebrations in priorities and practices. In verse 11, you find that Jesus' overarching mission was accomplished in this miracle through these simple words, and the disciples believed in him. This is why God's glory was manifested, so that people will believe and have abundant life that goes forever. Jesus' miracle was one that was subtle, behind the scenes, and quiet. However, for his family and his disciples, their lives would be changed forever in witnessing such a display of God's power through an otherwise ordinary human being as they had knew him at the time. And this leads us then to the final verse as they return home to Capernaum. Verse 12 says this, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. From this point on, after Jesus returns to Capernaum, which was his ministry home base, you don't hear about his mother Mary again in the Gospel of John until chapter 19, when Jesus was being crucified. And for his brothers, they aren't mentioned again, except for once in chapter 7. Jesus spends the rest of his time with his disciples, his spiritual family, and they walked with him and they witnessed everything that he did and said, all the signs that were recorded and many more as he continued to transform the ordinary into miracles. In the purpose statement of John, we read in the beginning, it was written that, quote, many other signs were accomplished and only some then were recorded. In other words, we only have a thin record of everything that Jesus did, and John collated them on purpose to help us to put our faith in Jesus as the Christ and to find life in him. But it's not everything. It's not exhaustive. But you know who saw everything as much as they were able? Jesus' spiritual family who followed him everywhere. I want to close with a simple question. Who are you following Jesus with? Today marks the end of our open enrollment for groups. You've heard Pastor Hanley and I repeat often this month the importance and the priority to connect to a group of people to walk and follow Jesus together, whether you're a Christian or not. To see the work of God with your own eyes, to experience it with your own life, to walk with others and one another's families, and children, and uncles, and aunties, and grandparents, to be able to be that band of brothers, and it doesn't have to be just brothers, and follow Jesus together, to bear one another's burdens, to apply God's commands for us towards one another on tangible lives, 
this is why we want you to all be a part of a group. Not to be a part of every group, we just want you to be committed to one. One for which you could know others and being known by others and to follow Jesus. Don't miss out on the things that God is doing in your life. Those disciples, we're going to have questions for them when we go to heaven. Tell me more about what Jesus did between Monday and Tuesday, every single week you were with him. Tell me more. Tell me more. We don't know what he did, but many of those disciples sure did. So then walk with the people of God, even with questions, even as you wrestle with your faith, even if you have deep and tremendous doubts about the validity of Scripture, about the gospel, about what the church stands for and doesn't stand for. Jesus calls for people to follow, and the tangible means of experiencing that is with one another. The big idea for today is this. Jesus exceeds our familial, religious, and cultural expectations because he is the Son of God, who is good and who is glorious. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today, for the privilege of seeing this miracle recorded by the Apostle John. We are privileged because if it wasn't recorded, we wouldn't even know. And there's so much more that we don't know. But we thank you, Father, that everything that you have inspired and have given us the opportunity and privilege to know, we could find in your word. And how that word takes root and bears fruit, and how that gospel changes rebellious sinners like us into children, welcomed in your home, in your presence forever. Father, that is something that we can see and experience in the lives of others. So God, Help us as a spiritual family to seek that leading and that example and that experience of following Jesus through walking with each other. Also, Lord, help us to seek the truth of your word and the hope in your gospel and the promises of your return and everything being made new in your perfect power and timeline through the promises declared in your word. We thank you that we could read your word for ourselves and together with one another, and that through understanding and through application, living and following Jesus becomes our life. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that you continue to open our hearts and minds as we journey through the Gospel of John. This is just the beginning as it was for those disciples and for his family and for everyone he's going to encounter. May we be found among those who are around Jesus with our hearts and ears open. May we praise you and give thanks to you as we worship. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen.